Welcome to the Sunday Morning Podcast from Kingdom Faith Church in Burgess Hill. This message is by Colin Squires. Thanks everyone. Feel free to take a seat. So as Sharon said, my name's Colin. I'm um, one of the uh, assistant congregation leaders in a Horsham congregation. So I'm working with Pastor Clive and Phil over there most Sundays. So this is actually, believe it or not, my first Burgess Hill Sunday morning since you guys went to mornings. Um, I was last here in August. It's been quite a while. But it's great to be here with you. For those who haven't met me before, you might recognize me from some of the videos or the voice of also coming up in the life of the church. If you call Kingdom Faith, you'll get a, hi, welcome to Kingdom Faith. How can I direct your call? That's my voice. So you might know me from that. But um, I want to kick off this morning by telling you a little bit of a story. Um, for as long as I can remember, from being very young, I had a fear of water. Not just, you know, like this. Like, ah! You know, that would be a really weird fear, but a fear of open water. Um, and I was trying to think, like, where did this come from? And I was thinking maybe my first quite vivid memory of, of having something kind of linked to this was when I was probably about seven or eight, and I was in primary school, and we were having swimming lessons in the school pool. Although, considering how much it was clean, it was more like the school pond. But... Our school pool had uh, handrails all the way around the edges, as most do, so you can hold on and practice your you know, breaststroke and all that kind of stuff. And, um, and I remember we all, as primary school kids, we had our spot along the rail, you know, at each end. That's my spot. Everyone get out of the way. Sort of like Christians today in church in their chairs on a Sunday. Get out. That's my spot. You know how it is. And, uh, and we would swim across the length of the pool, and then you'd go and get your spot, and then you'd turn around. You'd wait there for the instructor to tell you what to do next, and you'd swim again. But I remember this one particular occasion, I was really tired. I think maybe it was the fourth or fifth hamburger I'd had at lunchtime. Maybe I was getting cramped. I'm not sure. But I was really struggling. And I sort of had lost my place a bit. And I was straggling behind everyone else. Everyone else had made their way. And they'd all found their spots along the, the wall. And I kind of like watering my eyes. I'm coughing and spluttering like, where am I? And I try and swim up to the pole to grab it. And the kid's there like, no, this is my spot, and push me back out. And I'm starting to like, get a bit of water in my face and like, coughing and spluttering, so I try and swim along a bit. And the next kid pushes me out of the way and pushes me back into the water. And at this point, I take a big lungful of water, and I'm sort of really struggling at this point, just trying to grab onto something, can't see, can't breathe. And then Emily. I actually remember her surname, but I thought I'd better not say it for the sake of the podcast, because if she hears, me, hears it, she might sue me for defamation of character. But Emily... W, you know who you are if you're listening. She tried to drown me. She was, she was a big girl, and she was like, no, this is my spot. Gets my head and pushes me back under the water. And you know what it's like, that moment of just sheer panic. And there was a lifeguard like five feet from me. There was no real reason to be worried. But that panic moment, just trying to grab at, and I think then Emily suddenly realized, oh, no, what have I done? I'm about to kill a child. So she grabs me and just puts me in her place, and all was fine. But I thought that was my first traumatic memory of water. Also, I remember a few years later on holiday at a beach and swimming out with a, into the sea with a rubber ring around me and was quite happy with a rubber ring on until I found a boy and I thought, I'll swim out to a boy, you know, a floating boy, not like a boy, but a boy floating out there and thinking, oh, I want to see if I go all the way out to the boy and touch the boy. And I swam out and I touched the boy quite happy and then I looked down to see the chain that disappeared down into the inky depths covered in seaweed and all that kind of stuff. And that moment, I think the seawater might have got a little warmer, if you know what I mean as I turned around and in sheer panic just swam as hard as I could the other way. I didn't like open water. 
fast forward quite a number of years um, to about six, seven years ago when my, uh, my wife, Kate, though we were, I think we were just engaged at the time, went with some friends over to Montenegro to visit some missionary friends of ours. And they lived just on the most beautiful part of one of the most beautiful parts of the world, um, right in the Bay of Kotor. And if you want to Google the Bay of Kotor, I mean, it is like paradise on earth. And they lived a couple of minutes stroll from the bay, from the, from the beach. So every day we'd go down and we'd, you know, sunbathe and we'd build stone castles. There wasn't a lot of sand, pebble castles. And we'd go out for a little swim and I'd go for a bit of a paddle and then I'd come back in. Meanwhile, one of my friends, she would go out there and she'd be swimming in this sparkling blue crystalline ocean that was just incredible, just the Mediterranean, just beautiful. And she would be swimming out everywhere and I was thinking, that looks so cool, so refreshing. I want to do that. And so I'd swim out a little way, get a bit panicked and come back again and be like, oh, this is really annoying. And it suddenly hit me. Jesus, you've changed my life. You've certainly changed my life since when I was a child in primary school. And your word tells me that I do not have a spirit of fear or timidity, of being timid, of being afraid, but of power and love and self-control. So I thank you that this fear can be broken in Jesus' name. So I prayed against this fear. I said, in Jesus' name, I command this fear to leave, and now I'm going to do something about it. And so what we did was what's called, if you want the, the professional term, would be called graduated exposure. Each day, I went with my friend with a little, you know, float and swam out a little bit, like 30 feet, and the next day, 50 feet, and the next day, 100 feet, and then 100 feet, but without the float. And on the last day we were there, I was like, right, today's the day. Here we are on this side of the bay. One mile away is the other side of the bay. Let's do it. And so my friend there with carrying a buoyancy, just in case I started to panic, we swam. And probably wasn't the wisest thing. It was an active shipping lane. There were ferries coming across and all kind of stuff. <laughs> Maybe it wasn't the wisest thing. But we swam from one side of the bay to the other. And I got there. And do you know what? The feeling of like... Come on! That's been a lifetime. That had been at the time when I 27 years or something, 27 years of being afraid to do that. And we've done it! Just that sense of we've overcome. Yes, come on. And it was amazing. And do you know what? The most important thing I think was that what God wanted to do, I didn't realize at the time, was six months later, my wife and I, again, we were going for a stroll at Christmas time down a pier in South End. It's the longest pleasure pier in the Northern Hemisphere, if you, if you want to know. It's 2.1 miles out to sea. And it was this dark, stormy evening. Nobody else is around. Who wants to go on Christmas? I think it was Boxing Day or something like that, to a, a wet and stormy pier. Anyway, we get to the end of this pier, and a boy comes running up to us to tell us that his mum had jumped off. She wasn't in a very good place. She wasn't very happy with her life, and she jumped off on purpose. And... Kate and I looked at each other and we knew from the conversations we've been having on the way up, like everything, it just, we knew this is why we're here. We are here to see a miracle in this woman's life. And we were trying to help out in every way that we could, but after 20 minutes or so, she stopped responding. Her head was disappearing under the water and we thought, okay, this is it. This is why we're here. God, you want to do a miracle. And I did the one thing that you're really not supposed to do, made my way down into the bottom of the pier and jumped into the water. And I could see the legs of the pier disappearing down into the murky black. And rather than going, I'm not doing that, because this fear had been broken, because of this overcoming, what God had done in me and breaking this thing, I didn't even think. Just went straight in with a, with a, you know, a ring, took it out to her. And again, God had to work a miracle because if he hadn't, we would have both been dead. But God worked a miracle, long story short, and, and, and both of our lives were saved. And she lived, to, lived another day. And, but we knew that it was God who put us there for that reason. But had he not broken that fear in me, would, would he have used us or would it have happened at all? And I just, this is kind of what we want to look at today. Um, 
there's a really interesting couple of lines in Luke chapter 4, verse 1, where it, it talks about Jesus went into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and he went in full of the power of the Holy Spirit. And every one of us, I know this in this room, if you, if you know the Lord, you're full of the, of, you're, sorry, you're full of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus went in full of the Holy Spirit. It says, though, then a few verses later, that after being tempted by the devil, he came out of the wilderness full of the power of the Holy Spirit. He went in full. He came out in power. And I wonder whether there's something of overcoming, in overcoming the enemy, in overcoming fear, in overcoming sin in our lives that releases the power of God. And if we're ever thinking like, wow, I'm just not seeing the power of God. I know the Holy Spirit. He leads me. He guides me. I know Jesus. He loves me. I know we're here today and it's great and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But I want to see people healed. I want to see people free. I want to see people saved. I want to see like places full of people praising Jesus. I want to see the power of God impacting people. I wonder how much is that to do with God wanting to see breakthrough and overcoming in our lives. So you may remember that we are currently in a series called Simply Jesus. Pastor Clive kicked us off a couple of weeks ago with a video message about what it means to be led by the Holy Spirit. Uh, and then Pastor Kevin, I was listening last night, actually wanted to catch up, um, last week talking about being led again by the Holy Spirit in obedience and so that we're not led into coming up against walls and things, but we're led following the Holy Spirit. He also, really interesting, talked about feeding the Spirit or feeding the flesh. And, and it was interesting it was going to link in today. But if I could sum up the last couple of weeks, it would be in this, that Jesus, uh, when he was baptized in the Jordan, we read about in Mark 1. Mark 1 is our, our text for these next several weeks. In Mark 1, Jesus was baptized in the Jordan and the Holy Spirit came down in the, in the form of a dove. It wasn't a dove, it was the form of a dove and come arrested upon him. And, uh, and he walked conscious of the dove. He was led by the Spirit. And I remember um, doing a, a game with our children's work years ago where we had little origami doves and put them on people's shoulders and said, okay, now we're going to have a race around the, all of the chairs and the first person back wins, but you can't drop the dove. And it was the funniest thing watching people racing like this. It was the slowest race ever. It was very funny, but to demonstrate the point that we want to walk conscious of the dove, amen? We want to walk conscious of the Holy Spirit, being led by the Holy Spirit. We don't, don't want, if you imagine having a dove sat on your shoulder, you wouldn't want to jostle him, like, you know, get off, you know, you might end up with Holy Spirit poop down your shirt. I don't know if the Holy Spirit does that, but we don't want to jostle the dove. We want to live led by the dove. And that would kind of sum up the last couple of weeks, in my words, will sum up those last couple of weeks. And the Holy Spirit led Jesus immediately into the wilderness. And we're picking up our text this morning from there in um, Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Now, all we've got, I don't know if it will come up on the screen behind me, but if you want to turn to Mark chapter 1, 12 and 13, we've just got a couple of verses. And it's all about Jesus coming into the wilderness. And actually, there's not a lot there in Mark's account. Um, let's just bring this up. We'll read Mark chapter 1. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with wild animals, and angels attended him. So not a lot there, just a couple of verses. But actually, if we were then to look at the parallel accounts that we have in both Luke and Matthew, we get much more detail. So we're actually going to take this morning, though we've kind of been looking at Mark 1, we're actually going to look a bit more at Matthew this morning. So if you have your Bibles and you want to turn over to Matthew chapter 4, 
Now, I said that this account is given in both Matthew and Luke. And if you were to look at them in parallel, you might notice some slight differences in the details, uh, some slight differences in order, for example, of the temptations. Now, I don't know if you ever thought about this, but why do we get these slight differences in the Gospels? Um, so we're going to do a little bit of Bible study this morning. So we've got the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Everyone knows those, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and all the others they follow on. Um, but have you ever thought about who these writers were? So Matthew, uh, his other name was Levi, who we read about being called by Jesus. He was one of the 12 apostles, Matthew the Apostle. He was referred to as both Levi, a Hebrew name, and Matthew, a Greek name. And we read about him in Matthew, Luke, and Mark. Um, and he was with Jesus. He was an eyewitness. So reading the book of Matthew is an eyewitness account of the life of Jesus. Meanwhile, John, which we're not looking at this morning, but John, also the Apostle John, sometimes called John the Revelator because he wrote the, uh, the book of Revelation, as well as some others, 1, 2, and 3 John. Um, John was also one of the disciples. He was the brother of James. Both of them were apostles. He was an eyewitness of Jesus. But then slightly different, we have the book of Mark. So Mark 1 is the, our text for these few weeks. Mark, otherwise known as John Mark, he was not one of the eyewitnesses of Jesus. He was saved later, if you want to use that term. Um, and we read about him later in Acts. And he and Paul had a bit of falling out at one point. You might remember him from that bit of the story. But he was really good friends with the apostle Peter. So the book of Mark is actually probably the book of Peter in that it was Peter's eyewitness account that John Mark was writing down. Okay, you with me so far? Lots of different names. You with me? Okay. And then finally we get Luke. Now Luke was not a Jew. He was a doctor and he was Greek. And he, or a Gentile, he was writing down lots of different people's eyewitness accounts. We read about this at the very start of the book of Luke. He talks about, and I talked to all these people. So it's a bit more of a compendium of different people's views. Now, if, I, if we were all to witness, God forbid, a car crash this morning after church, and I were to come around and ask each of you, what did you see? You would all talk about the same car crash. But some of the details might be slightly different. Which car swerved first? Or, you know, how, how fast were they going when they hit the lamppost? All those kind of things. Now, the overall picture would be the same. You'd, you'd get the details of a car crash. But they'd be slightly different. And actually, if you're a historian who is into textual criticism, which is the study of the reliability of historical texts, then actually these slight differences in viewpoints are actually one of the things that lends the Bible its historical authenticity. If it was all exactly the same, you'd go, well, it's been made up, or it's been doctored, or it's over time. But actually, the fact that there are these slight differences, um, then it shows the authenticity of Scripture. And actually, historically speaking, as a historical text, the Bible is one of the most reliable historical texts that we have. But the important part is to realize that the details is not what is important. It's what God wants to communicate through it that is. And actually, these slightly different details help give insight into the various characteristics and different characteristics of Jesus in the same way that if we all saw that crash, we'd sit from different viewpoints. You might all give slightly different information, but all of it would be relevant and all would create a bigger, better picture. So anyway, we're back, back to our text. So let's read from Matthew just to get a bit of a picture. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, surprise, and the tempter, the devil, came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's from Deuteronomy. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written. 
He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, uh, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil left him, and angels came and attended him. Now, we read about here Jesus overcoming these three temptations, but actually there were lots more. In the very last line of Luke's account of this, we read about the devil left him until an opportune time. So the devil would have come back, and we know at least of that happening at least once when Jesus says to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan, when the devil wanted to try and tempt Jesus through Peter. Um, we know all over the place about this the stuff that we don't see, that Jesus, before we really read much about his life, lived 30 years with a mum and a dad. I'm sure he was tempted at one point to say, no, I don't want to clean my room, mum. Like, you know, he would have been tempted to be disobedient and all sorts. He would have been tempted, I'm sure, on the day that he was riding his donkey into work and someone cut him up on the roundabout on their donkey because they were speeding, probably doing six or seven mile an hour. And he's like, what do you think you're doing? And he's like, oh, better, not, better not sin in my anger, you know. So there would have been plenty, ample opportunity opportunity for Jesus to be tempted throughout his life. And yet we read in Hebrews 4.15 that Jesus, who was tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. So I don't know about you guys, but I've been tempted too in my life, but I've not always been without sin. Anyone else here? For those of you who aren't nodding, by the way, the Bible says that if you uh, say that you are without sin, then you deceive yourself. And uh, yeah, so we know that's not true. So you should all be nodding. Yeah. We, none of us have got it quite perfect. Um, but that's the difference between Jesus. He was tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet was without sin. So he overcame the devil. He overcame in many other areas. And actually, we read about in Revelation 3.21, he said, I overcame and sat down with my father on the throne. So he's even said, I have overcome. So it's pretty clear, right? And today we're looking about overcoming. And what's really encouraging is in this verse, the sentence before he says, I overcame, he said, and to him or her who overcomes, you can sit with me on my throne just as I have overcome. Isn't that so encouraging? We can be overcomers just like Jesus. And not even overcomers like by the skin of our teeth. Because it says in Romans 8 that we are more than conquerors in Christ. Amen? So we are called to be overcomers. So we're going to look today, well, what does that mean? What are we called to overcome? What does that look like? And practically, what are we going to do? What does that mean? The three enemies that we have are... Anyone know? If I said the three enemies that we have, I want to jump in on this. We've got the world, the flesh or self, yep, and the devil. Yep, so our three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And I don't know if you ever had someone say, like, oh, the, real, the devil's really having a go at me today. And probably what they mean is just, like, I just I'm just feeling, like, lazy. I just don't want to get out of bed or whatever, you know. It's not actually the devil's having a go. It's just, it's just our flesh. It's just our laziness. It's just our pride, our selfishness. You know, anyone been there sometimes? Yep, yep, yeah. Um, so we've got these three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we could do a whole series probably in the next several weeks on what it means to be an overcoming in the world, the flesh, and the devil. But we've not got that time. So we're just going to speed through things a little bit today. But we want to first look at the fact that 
Jesus has overcome all these things. This is really important. John 16:33 says, Jesus said, take heart, I have overcome the world. Luke 22:42, Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, not my will, not my selfish ambition or my desire, but yours be done. He overcame flesh. And of course, we read about in Galatians about, um, sorry, no, if he... No, Galatians. Paul says about crucify the flesh. We've crucified the flesh. So if the way we deal with our flesh is it crucified, well, then Jesus definitely overcame the flesh, didn't he? Because he was physically crucified. So he overcame the flesh. And finally, he says in Hebrews 2.14, through death, he destroyed the one who has the power over death, that is the devil. So he's overcome the world, he's overcome flesh, and he's overcome the devil. What does that mean for us? We can live in the good of it. But we need to appropriate it. That means we need to take it in faith and make it real, put it in action for ourselves. So what are we talking about with the world, the flesh, and the devil? So the world is kind of like the culture that we live in. So the culture of the world that might affect us might be things like humanism. So rather than relying on God, we go, I can work it out myself. I don't need anyone else. I can just sort it out in of myself. I have everything I need within myself to see it sorted. We also might have things like uh, a culture of fear of not having enough, like I need to hoard or I need to you know, not give away all my money or all that kind of stuff because then I won't have enough and, and that's bad. So culture of the world can then affect our thoughts, our flesh. So our flesh might then have the thought of, well, I will steal so that I have enough. Or maybe it would be in the context of humanism and that kind of stuff, where then I'm going to make the decision, God, I don't need you. I'm going to sort this out. It becomes an action. So then our flesh, our pride, our arrogance, our selfishness, that kind of thing. And then finally, we've got the devil. Now, all these things are all kind of linked. But I think often where we think we attribute stuff to the devil, actually the Bible says, do not give the devil a foothold. So our flesh, if we are to, it says, so if you are stealing, don't do that anymore. So if in our flesh we were doing things like stealing or whatever it might be, if we were to continue to do that, we give the devil a foothold rather than the devil was the one who made us steal. Does that make sense? Now, of course, the devil did directly tempt Jesus, so it's kind of all tied up in one there in all different facets. But are you with me so far? We've got the world which can affect our culture and the things around us that can affect the way we then choose to think and act. And the way that we choose to think and act can give the devil a stronghold or a foothold in our life where it becomes a spiritual issue, not just one of decision. Does that make sense? with me. So let's start off then with the world. We're going to look at some practical things we can do like in what does it mean practically then in a spiritual sense to overcome in each of these areas. So first the world. We're going to look at Romans chapter 12 verse 2. Um, we'll go from verse 1. The Apostle Paul, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, for the holy and acceptable, for this is your act of spiritual worship. So we're in the context of worshiping, giving ourselves over to God. And then he says, so do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, to the world, worldly mindset, worldly attitudes, those kind of things, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. For then you'll be able to know and approve or test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. So it is the renewing of our mind where we see this transformation take place in overcoming, uh, overcoming the world. Um, and we're going to look a little bit about what, what that looks like. So uh, would you turn with me to Joshua chapter 7. Uh, so we're going all the way. Sorry, we've got so many scripture references today. I'm not sorry, but it's going to be a lot of Bible flicking. 
to give you a bit of context here, in Joshua chapter 6, we read about Jericho and the walls of Jericho falling as all the people walked around it for six days. And on the seventh day, they shouted and it all came crashing down. And, uh, and then what they were to do, God said, was to go into the city and destroy the lot, like every brick torn apart, everything set fire and burnt and utterly, absolutely, completely destroyed because it is evil, it's abominable, it's awful in my sight, and it must be destroyed. Apart from the gold, silver, bronze, and iron, which should be gathered and put into the temple as sort of like a thank you, Jesus, that you have defeated the city, we want to give you all the treasure from it. Everything else be destroyed. And then we read about this guy, Achan. And Achan, um, well, in fact, before we get there, we read about Ai. And Ai was another place that they had to go and attack. And they were like, oh, this will be easy. We'll send a few thousand guys. It'll be easy. We'll take them out. And the, these army of Israel, Israelites get absolutely wiped out. They get it handed to them. And 36 of them get killed. And they get chased out. And they're running for their lives. And Joshua falls on the floor before God and says, God, why is this happening? We just took Jericho. And now, now this should be an easy one. And it's not working. And God says, there's sin in the camp. You need to find it and sort it out. And what had happened, and this is where we like to use a bit of Bible imagination, is this guy Achan, I imagine him being one of the soldiers who was going in to destroy the city and had his torch in his hand and he'd burnt a few different you know, houses down and all that kind of stuff, all being destroyed. And he comes to this next one and he just, a bit of curiosity sort of like catches him a bit. And he goes, I wonder what all this fuss is about anyway. What is it that we're destroying? Surely can't be that bad. And he puts his torch in like a little nook in the wall and he walks in. And there he sees, poking out of a wardrobe, a little bit of a sleeve. And he's like, what is that? Can it be? That looks like it is cashmere. Goodness me, I've not felt cashmere. So I don't know if it was cashmere, maybe it was silk, I don't know. But like, oh, now that is soft. That is nice. And he opens up the wardrobe and sees before him this beautiful flowing robe of purest cashmere. And he just rubs his face on it. Oh, my goodness, I've been wearing sackcloth. This is just beautiful. Surely this can't be burnt. Oh, well, God said, I better do it. So he reaches for the torch. And just as before he grabs it, he looks back and he goes, it's a beautiful colour as well, isn't it? Vertical stripes are very slimming, very in. Mm. Oh, I must destroy it. And before he destroys it, he goes, looks like it might be my size too. <laughs> I will destroy it. I will destroy it. But surely there's no harm in just trying it on. I mean, God didn't say he had to destroy it like right now, as long as it's destroyed. So he leaves the torch and he goes and takes this robe off its hanger. I'm sure they had coat hangers. Um, and he just pulls it on and just the... Oh, yes. Now that is more like it. Oh, look, fits perfectly in the shoulders, not too snug. Oh, yes, and he looks behind him and sees full-length mirror, admires himself. Oh, Aiken. Oh, yes, you sly dog. You're looking fantastic. Mm, I probably should destroy this, but oh, it is so comfy. I tell you what, what if I take it back to my tent... And then later I could try it on again. I could show some of my friends. They could take some photos. We'll Instagram them. It's all for the gram. And then we'll destroy it. Because as long as it's destroyed, it's okay, right? So he looks around. No one's looking. Folds up the road. Stuffs it down his trousers. And as he does, he sees all the guys who came to take all the gold and silver missed a bit. And he finds 2.3 kilos, two shekels of silver, and about 0.6 grams of gold. Uh, sorry, 0.6 kilos of gold. Which, out of curiosity, I researched and found out that's about £26,000 worth of gold and silver in today's money. You wouldn't believe how much more valuable gold is than silver. It was really fascinating. 2.3 kilos of silver? About £1,000. 0.6 kilos of gold? 
£25,000. <laughs> Crazy. Anyway, he gets... I should know that from buying my wedding ring or from, from my wife's engagement ring. Anyway, he takes this and he sticks it down his, his pockets and he makes his way back to his tent and he buries it in the ground. And we know what's going on. If he's burying it, what does that look like? Look like someone who knows they're doing the right thing? No, it's shame. It's, oh, no. Oh, no, I probably shouldn't have taken this. Oh, what was I thinking? I was supposed to burn it. Now if anyone finds out, oh, I can't spend it. I can't do anything. It's not benefited him, him any. But now he's got to hide this thing that he's done. But, of course, Joshua knows. God has spoken to him. And what God says is, first, take the tribes. So he calls tribe one by one, tribal leader, and Achan's there, and he's sort of getting a little bit hot around the collar as one by one the 12 tribes come by, and then Judah's called up. And he goes, oh, no, that's my tribe. And they go, yep, it's tribe of Judah. Okay, now select them by clan. And each of the clans come up, and he's going, please not my clan, please not my clan, please not my clan, please not my clan. And then, yep, all the clans come by, his clan is chosen. And now he's getting really worried, like sweat pits, like down to here. And he's like, oh, no, please not my family, please not my family. All the families come by, and it goes, yep, it's, it's Achan's family. And he's like, oh, no, 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 please not me, please not me. I don't know if you remember that video from Alpha, and uh, Nicky Gumbel gets caught with the the loot in his bag. So, oh no, my wife, I've been married to a shoplifter. I love that. And A comes there, he's going, oh no, it's me, it's me, it's me, it's me. And it gets to him and it's nobody else. And I imagine sort of like a prophet there, like almost like a scanner, just kind of going like this, go, nope, next. Nope, next. And then, then Aiken comes by and he's like, beep, 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 beep. God says this one. He says it's this one. And Joshua's like, Aiken, come on. And I love the way he does it. He's like, come on, just glorify God in this. What happened? And it seems to be in a really gentle way. He's like, what happened? And Aiken's like, I'm so sorry. I took it. It's true. And I buried it in my tent. But his sin held the whole camp back. And we were talking about this, this verse from Luke which says, Jesus went in full of, the, full of the Holy Spirit, came out in power. They didn't have the power to overcome the army, even though the army was weak that they were going against, because they didn't have power because of the sin in the camp. And so I wonder, we all have the Holy Spirit. God is not lifting his Holy Spirit from us when we sin. In fact, the Bible says that where sin abounds, there much more does grace abound. So does that mean we should go on sinning? By no means. But we know that when we sin, we have this high priest who identifies with us in our sin. Because he sinned in every way, just as not sinned in every way, was tempted in every way. That was close. Um, tempted in every way, just as we are. He identifies with us. He draws close to us in our sin. It was sin that drew Jesus to us on the cross. Amen. So he doesn't distance himself from us. So I'm not saying if we sin, then, then God is like distancing himself from us. That's not what I'm saying. But are we losing some of the opportunity to move in some of the power that he has for us because our focus is in the wrong place or we're feeding the wrong thing? So this guy, Aiken, he repents and all that kind of stuff, and they burn it and all that stuff. And then it's great. They move on, and it's, and it's great, and we overcome. Um, but it started with curiosity. It started with a thought. It started with, I wonder what's in there. And actually, we can read other... I wasn't sure who we were going to have in the service today. We've got no kids in here. So if you'd like to read another example of this, then you could find in 2 Samuel 13, we read about Amnon and his half-sister Tamar. And it's really interesting the way that it words this in the, um, in the NIV. It says that he made himself sick thinking about her. What started off as just a thought, it says that he loved her. But actually, when we read about what happened, he didn't love her. He was obsessed with her, his half-sister. And because of thought, he kept thinking about her, thinking about her. He was like, I need to do something about this. And he came up with an action based on this thought that he'd made himself sick. And he actually, he ended up forcing himself upon her. And it, it sort of like, it, it destroyed their relationship. It ruined his life. It ruins her life. And then it said he hated her all the more than he'd ever loved her because of this thing, because this really twisting, horrible thing. Rather than overcoming it, he'd given into it. But it started with a thought. And again, we've talked to this Romans 
12.2 says that um, we are to have our minds renewed if we're to overcome the world. It starts with thoughts. Margaret Thatcher, regardless of what you think about her as a politician, she said this, Watch your thoughts, for they will become your words. Watch your words, for they will become your actions. Watch your actions, for they will become your habits. Watch your habits, for they will become your character. And watch your character, for it will become your destiny. What we think, we become. I think that's really, really apt. Now, obviously, Margaret Thatcher wasn't quoted in the Bible, but if we turn over to James chapter 1, verses 14 to 15, it says this, Each person is tempted when he's dragged away, enticed and baited by his own worldly, and then we go again, the world, worldly desire. I'm reading, by the way, from the Amplified. Then when illicit desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin has run its course, it gives birth to death. Do not be misled, my beloved brothers and sisters. And I think that word misled links back to that earlier verse, back in verse 14, where it says, enticed and baited. Do not be misled. And we come right back to to Mark, uh, where Jesus was led by the Spirit. He was never misled. He never allowed the enemy to lead him down this route or that route. He followed the Spirit, which is just what what Pastor Kevin was speaking about last week. Do not be misled, my brothers and sisters. I'm going to need someone to help me out with a little bit of uh, an example. Marcel, would you be so kind as to help me with something? Um, if, uh, if you would just go over behind, out that door there, you'll find that under a blue sheet, there's something that I've got for you. If you could just go out the door, put that on, and then, uh, and then come back. Yeah, that, that blue sheet. Yeah, that's it. Grab that, out the door, put that on, and then come back. That, w- that would be great. Thanks very much. While he's, while he's doing that, pay no attention to the man behind the, behind the curtain. Um, while he's doing that, have you ever been in a position where you feel like you're coming up against sin, maybe it's a habitual thing, maybe it's something that you've gone around again and again and again and again, and you feel like every time you come up against this thing, it flattens you. You get defeated and you make this vow to yourself, I'm never going to do this thing again, I'm never going to go there again, I'm never going to think it, look there, do it, act it, whatever it might be, I'm never going to do it again, only to find that a week goes by and you find yourself doing the same thing again. Anyone ever been there? I've been there myself. Marcel, come on in. Come on in. He's destroying the place already, but it's all right. Can we have a round of applause, please, for Marcel? Looking fantastic. (laughs) Fantastic. Wendy, would you be up for coming and helping us out? Okay, ready, everyone? Fight, 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 fight. (laughs) Whoa, hold on, hold on. So for the sake of this example, by the way, if you've never understood how sumo wrestling works, you have a big ring on the floor, and, uh, and then you get two wrestlers, and they do this whole kind of like thing like this, and then they, they fight, and they have to push the other one out of the circle. And interesting fact, by the way, we've not got a circle, but we're going to have a go at this in a minute. Interesting fact, Marcel, actually, if you didn't know, sumo wrestlers are trained to draw their male parts up into their body so they can't be kicked or grabbed or elbowed or anything like that and you know sort of taken advantage of so if you just want to do that now because Wendy's got a lot of elbows and knees going on um, so okay ready perfect there we go (laughs) but Marcel is going to represent for us sin so if I had a label I could stick on here maybe something like just losing my temper anger this whole sort of thing feeling almost controlled by anger and rage that kind of thing 
that might be on here. Or maybe it could be anything. Maybe it could be drinking too much. Or maybe it could be getting feeling really down and depressed and just gorging on food and just overeating. Maybe that could be on there. Whatever it is, insert name in the blank, whatever the thing that you've been struggling with. And what over here, we feel like Wendy, who is smaller in stature than Marcel. Maybe we feel like this is the sort of match that we've got. So if you guys could just get into positions. Uh, I'm going to get this out of the way. Please don't hurt each other because actually we waived insurance for doing this. So um, yeah, if you could just see, if you could have a little bit of a pushing contest, see, and if you can get past this point, Marcel wins. When if you get him past this point, then you win. Okay, ready? Go. Please, please. No, Marcel, you've got to go that way. You've got to go that way. Okay, let's see how... How are we going? Come on, come on, Marcel. Come on. This should be really easy. For the sake, for the sake of the argument, Marcel, you're going to win. You're way bigger and heavier. <laughs> there is no way in reality that you would win. <laughs> but fantastic. I'm sorry, Wendy. You, you lost the fight again. Has anyone ever felt like this? Felt like in sin, we're coming against this massive sumo wrestler, and we end up getting absolutely flattened. Anyone ever been there? Yeah, if we're really honest. Yeah, probably have. Thank you, Wendy. Just give Wendy a round of applause. If you could stay here just another moment, Marcel, because you look fantastic as well. It really suits you. It's very slimming, actually. Um, but the, the lie of the enemy is that right here, at this point where I'm coming up against this sin, whatever this thing that has been in my life is, this is the battle. That is a lie. The battle started the day before, or maybe the week before, or maybe the month before, when, let's say that this was this rage and anger and bitterness and all that kind of thing. It started the week before when I got really annoyed with my boss. And rather than going, no, I choose to forgive him, I just got really upset and frustrated. By the end of the day, I kind of forgotten about it, but I'd not done anything with it. A few days go by and I see him in the office and I just think, I'd really like to give him a piece of my mind. And you start fantasizing about Oh, just what would it feel like to sink my fist into those teeth, you know? A few more days go by, and you, you end up walking in, and something slips out of your mouth that you didn't really mean to say, and it's just bubbling up. And then, two days later, you're having a lovely evening with your wife, and suddenly something happens, and you explode. This rage, horrible beast thing comes out of you, and you feel like, oh, no, I've lost my temper, I've lost it, and you get flattened by this thing again. You felt you had no control over, and you couldn't win. You know what I mean? And it could be anything. It could be looking at something on, on the internet that you shouldn't be. It should be like whatever it might be. It doesn't start here. It starts so often back here. And remember what we, well, Margaret Thatcher quote, both what the Bible says, that it's our thoughts that lead to action. And what we need to do is start there. Now, of course, in this moment, am I saying that all hope is lost? No. No, not at all. In this moment, still, Jesus can come and intervene. And even in this moment, we can say, you know, no, I'm not having it. I come against this thing. I cut it off and I turn from it. I repent. We can do that at any time. But what God wants to teach us to do is not be living here, but to be living in wisdom over here so we never even get to that battle. And so what we want to do is we want to start to starve this sumo wrestler. Because at the moment, look at this, it's got a fair bit of uh, extra weight going on there. And so if I kind of try to run against this, I'm just going to get, well, that actually is really effective. <laughs> if anyone wants to go just a pylon at the end, then we can do that. But um, what we want to do is starve this guy. Now, we actually read about this in, if I can find my notes, we actually read about this. In Romans 13, 14, it says, make no provision for sin. If you're going on a hike, you're going up a mountain, what do you take with you? 
provisions. You need to make sure that you have enough food with you for the journey so that you stay strong, you have the energy. What we don't want to do is give this sin, this sumo wrestler, the provision to defeat us. So it means taking that thought captive in the first place. It means dealing with it. It means cutting off the thought of the enemy back here, not waiting till we get there. Are you with me? So we're going to have a look at a little bit what that looks like. Marcel, thank you very much. You can take off the sumo costume. It starts getting very warm. So next time we're coming up against that thing, we're not fighting an enormous half ton of sumo wrestler. We're fighting against a skinny waif of a thing that we just go, and thud, he falls, like Goliath. You know, when just David, he had the answer. He knew what God had said, picked up the stone. He didn't need to try and fight in his own strength. God had already gone before him, had already done the work. He'd done the work in him when he was fighting the lions and the bears. So he had the answer. So what God wants to do in us in the wilderness is so that we can overcome in, in a, when we're coming against that sumo wrestler. So what, does that, what might that look like? It might look like they're little things. If, for example, we use that same example of anger might look like, maybe some of the TV shows we're watching is a bit of a soap opera and they're always having a go at each other and they're always losing their rag. Maybe that's not feeding something that's very helpful. And there's not sin in it. It's not like evil. It's full of like sex and violence and all that kind of stuff. But it's still feeding something in you that is not helpful. Maybe just cut that thing off. Or maybe it's just the pers- a person you're spending time with, they, just, they keep this thing going round and round in you and it keeps coming up and it's just producing something that's toxic or negative in you and you're not ready to change that atmosphere yet. You need to allow God to do something in you first. Maybe that's feeding something that's not helpful. And this might seem like, well, that's the sin. This isn't the sin. Why do we need to deal with this? But Jesus is really clear about this. He's in fact very extreme. He says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. It's better to go into heaven maimed than it is to have your whole, all your members, your whole body cast into hell. So how much better to get to the end of our life and having never watched that really popular TV show, but we're getting into heaven and we've seen fruit come out of our lives. How much better that than we say we get to heaven and we still make it into heaven, but the fruit of our lives is, well, I never really saw the power of God at work through my life. Hey, but I, watched, I got to watch all eight seasons. Do you know what I mean? There's a TV show at the moment that I would really love to watch. It's been out for quite a while and loads of people have told me how amazing it is. Lots of non-Christian friends and Christian friends have told me it's amazing. It's really good. I think you'd really like it. The acting's amazing. The scripting's amazing. The special effects are amazing. The story just so just draws you in. It's awesome. And I think I'd really like it. But I've also been told that it's full of sex and violence. And I'm like, oh, but I'd really like to watch it, but I don't want to compromise. That thing. Those things wouldn't be helpful for me to watch, so I'm going to cut that off. I'm making the decision. I'm never going to watch that. Maybe I've really lost out on watching a TV show. Really? Maybe that's what I'm worried about really losing out on? Or how about maybe I'm losing out on seeing the power of God at work in my friend's life and seeing him saved? And I never want that TV show to become more important than that. Do you know what I mean? I never want the watching this to be worth the battle with a sumo wrestler that I lose. And sometimes it's hard, but that's what overcoming looks like. But it's much easier to overcome here than it is there. Just to reinforce this example, I want to give another example that David Pawson gives um, in Freedom in Christ. Everyone, everyone ever seen Freedom in Christ? Um, the Freedom in Christ course? It's, it is really good. But he gives the example of biscuits. And he says like this. I'm, I'm going to say it in... in his, his words. He says, I like biscuits. A little bit too much. 
Some people have told me, my, my wife's told me, my doctor's told me that I like biscuits a bit too much and I probably should lay off the biscuits. So we have a no biscuits in our house policy. None. But the other day, I was just walking through Marks and Spencer's and I was just doing a bit of shopping, pushing my trolley along. I was like, ooh, quinoa. Don't mind if I do. And I'm just pushing my trolley along. And then I came to the biscuit aisle and looked down it and this smell wafted over me. And I thought... I'll just walk down it. I won't buy anything. I'll just have a look at the latest biscuits. Oh, Hobnobs have released a new milk and dark chocolate variety. Very nice. Oh, custard creams. Double custard. Oh, now you're talking. Oreo Golds. They sound fantastic. But I won't buy any. Oh, look at this. Luxury. Shortcake. Oh, my favorite. I'll just hold it just to hear the crinkle of the plastic in my ear. Oh, that's a good sound. But I won't buy any. Maybe I'll just, maybe I'll just take them to the checkout, put them in my trolley. You know, I'll just, just, just to remind myself what it feels like to think about buying them, get to the checkout, and then, in fact, just, I'll just buy them, but I won't eat them. Beep, 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 beep. I'll have a few packets. You never know. I'll just look at them. I get them home. I put them on my mantelpiece. I'm not going to eat them. I sit there. Maybe I'll make myself a cup of tea, and I drink my cup of tea, and thinking. Sure, will go really well with this. Biscuits. Oh, but you know I've got some right here. I'll just open them. I'll just have a look. But I won't eat them because I know how bad they are for me. Oh, no, that's good. Oh, butter, sugar, not a lot else. That's what I want in a biscuit. But I won't eat it. Maybe if I taste it, that's okay. Oh, no, you're talking. But I won't. What have I done? I suddenly realised I'm not going to be able to continue preaching because this biscuit's really dry. Excuse me one second. Really dry. You guys need some chocolate hobnobs. Okay, better. I'll clean this up later. I'm sorry. And I know it's the same example again, but I really, really felt God wants to stress this point to us. At what point should David have made the decision to not go near the biscuits? Was it when he was having them on his tongue? Was it when he was at the checkout? Was it maybe at the point before he made the decision, I'll go down the biscuit aisle? So part of what this looks like is a change, is doing something different. And if you're making notes, then I would want to leave you with these kind of these four points. What can we do to make sure that we're not making provision for sin? In no particular order. One, know our authority in Christ. This is not a feeling. We read about uh, in Romans, about, is it Romans? Yeah, put on Christ. I want to tell you the story about the little old lady who walked out into traffic only to find that the 10 ton lorry coming the other way was leaning on his horn, shouting out his window, What do you think you're doing? You're going to get yourself killed. And, you know, all this traffic swerving to avoid her, thinking someone needs to look after this lady. She shouldn't be out here on the roads alone. The next day, the old lady comes back to the road. Same road, same old lady, but this time she's wearing a fluorescent jacket and holding a lollipop stick. She steps out into traffic, and everyone immediately comes to a screeching halt. The lady has not changed. The situation has not changed. 
But what the lady is wearing has changed. Her authority is different, not because of who she is, but because of what the authority that has been given to her is. You might not feel like you have authority. You might feel, I've been defeated, I've given into this sin time and time again, I have no authority. Your authority is not earned, it is given. We put on Christ. If Jesus says to the devil, no, get away from here, for it is written, you can say the same thing, and he responds in the same way, because you wear Christ. That same verse talks about the blood of Jesus. And we read in Revelations 12, 11, it says, we overcame, they overcame the devil by the blood of the lamb and the word of testimony. You have been washed in the blood. That's a weird statement, and we would, I'd love to take more time to unpack it. But that means you're covered. The blood of Jesus that defeated the one who held death, the devil, is what protects you. So your authority is not in your feelings. It is in what he has done. And the word of our testimony is what he has done for us. So we speak it out. So when we come against the devil, just like Jesus did in the wilderness, we're not just coming against him. Jesus didn't just say no. He then came against him with the sword of the word, the sword of the spirit. Our one offensive weapon, by the way, that we have spiritually. Everything else is defensive. The armor of God, all those kind of things. One offensive weapon, the word. We come back at him. It is written. This is what God says about me. God has said that those he sets free are free indeed. No longer to be yoked, never to be yoked again with a yoke of slavery. I have peace. God has made me a person of peace, a peacemaker, and I am blessed. All those kind of things. We speak the word, we use that sword, and we cut the enemy down. But do we do it at the point where we're about to blow our top in front of our wife or whatever, or do we do it in the first moment? The Bible talks about taking thoughts captive. Again, it's like a very, make them obedient. It's a very militant sort of picture. We take them captive. Um, The word, we speak the truth. We take every thought captive. That's 2 Corinthians 10.5. And finally, we break shame, or penultimately, sorry. We break shame. Speak to somebody about it. You would not believe the power that there is in this. Ecclesiastes 4.9 says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either one of them falls down, one can help the other up. James 5.16 tells us, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. There is a freedom from shame, the thing that, just like Achan, caused him to bury everything under the ground. If he'd gone to his friend and said, I really want to take this stuff and bury it in my tent, what do you think? He'd be like, mate, what are you thinking? That's the worst idea ever. Like, that's going to affect the whole camp. And Achan probably would have gone, you're right. I don't know what I was thinking. That was stupid. Father, forgive me. Burn it. You know what I mean? Speak to someone. Speak to one of the pastors here. Speak to your small group leader. And then, of course, 1 John 1, 7 says, if we are in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. We want to walk in the light where the enemy can't touch us. 1 John talks, sorry, John 1 talks about the darkness has not, could not overcome the light. We bring stuff in the light, speak with one another. It breaks shame. And all these things come together. In the world, we overcome the world by renewing our minds, by changing our thoughts, by, coming, by, by taking thoughts captive which changes the way that we work in our flesh. We're crucifying the flesh. We're doing the thing that we really don't want to do. We're going and talking to somebody about it. We're seeing this crucified. We're saying, help me make sure all these things are nailed to the cross, that nothing is left that my pride or my selfishness wants to keep hold of. And finally, we're coming against the enemy in our authority. We're saying, just like I did with the fear thing, I rebuke fear. I cut it off. That's no longer who I am. God has spoken, and then I come with a word. God has said that I do not have a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. That is who I am. And then I did something different. I started to make a choice to go out and show, do something with that, that fear and overcome that fear. 2 Timothy 2.22 talks about flee from the, uh, the, the 
passions of youth or the sin of youth. And I don't think that's flee out of fear. It's run away from because you want to be nowhere near it. So it's like that, that sumo wrestler. I don't want to see how close I can get before I, like, I lose it. I want to run the other way. So make a difference. Make a change. Maybe that means putting a block on something, on that TV show, or saying to your wife, like, let's not watch this anymore. It might be making a decision. I don't want to see that person anymore for a little while because I need to. Whatever it might mean. Make a change. Speak to someone. Break shame. And... Uh, and lastly, let's see in all of this, not just out of self-effort, but in being led by that dove, being walking with the dove. So right at this point where we're with a sumo wrestler, we know that right now the, the dove's like, like flapping its wings, pulling us this way. But what about at this point? If we're walking conscious of the dove, is it going to change the way that we entertain that thought or not? Or we take it captive and we go, okay, I'm walking conscious of the dove. Holy Spirit is saying, this program is not going to help me or whatever it might be. This conversation is not going to help me. I'm just going to leave and just take a minute to go, thank you, Holy Spirit. I give it over to you. If you want to understand a little bit about the, the science of what's going on here, it's, I think it's really interesting. This last verse, I'll leave you with this before we just take a minute to respond. We read in Proverbs that it says, and we know this verse so well, right, that it says, above all else, guard your heart, for from it comes everything we do. In Hebrew mindset, heart and mind were pretty much synonymous. They're the same thing. But in Western culture, we think of heart as quite a romantic idea, like almost a philosophical kind of thing. Like, I can date that guy as long as I don't get my heart broken. You know, it's sort of like a separated from my decisions thing. But a better translation that we might understand better, I mean, would be, above all else, guard your thoughts for from them flow everything that we do. And our prefrontal cortex is where we, we do all this decision-making. Um, and our limbic system, our emotional response, is usually where we lose it and we feel like I was out of control and I couldn't do it, all that kind of stuff. It's very difficult to make a logical, informed decision that says, do you know what, rationally, I don't want to do this. I want to submit myself to God at that moment where you're losing it with a sumo wrestler. But over here, where you, you're still thinking like you know, compass mentis and you're a bit more with it, you can say, Jesus, now's the time. I don't want to do that. I don't want to end up there. Now's the time to deal with it. Even our biology follows what the Bible says. So would you stand with me? Because we're just going to take a minute just to respond. I just want you to take a moment just to close your eyes and just a picture, if you've been in that situation where you feel like you're up against that sumo wrestler, whatever that sin might look like, just take a step back from it for a moment, almost in your imagination, your mind's eye. And first thing we're going to do is we're going to say, in the name of Jesus, I cut that thing off from my life, whatever it might be. You can do that very quietly, but it's really important that you do it out loud. In Jesus' name, I come against that thing. I come against whatever it might be. I come against, and on behalf of everyone in this room right now, I come against lust. I come against pride. I come against anger. I come against fear. In Jesus' name, all these things, I cut them off. And we do so with the authority that we have, that God-given authority in Christ. The next, we say, Holy Spirit, forgive me for where I have made the same mistake over and over again at the start of the battle and allowed myself to be dragged into it. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would show me next time I'm at the start of that journey, you would show me that I can take a different path. Holy Spirit, lead me just as you led Jesus. You might lead me through the wilderness, but I know that you'll lead me out the other side if I'm following you. Show me next time in the first step, on the biscuit aisle, if you like, 
where to make the decision to take a different path. And Jesus, I thank you that you are for me, that your blood has covered me, that you have forgiven me, that you've made me new, that you've made me your own. And I thank you that in all of this, what you want to do is release more of your power so that I can overcome in my life, so that I can see the overcomer impact in the lives of other people around me. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Kingdom Faith podcast. We trust it's been an encouragement to you. For more information and resources from Kingdom Faith and our other audio and video podcasts, please visit www.kingdomfaith.com.